This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontario residents 60 and older became eligible to book a fourth shot of COVID vaccine this past Thursday. After the usual first-day challenges with the provincial booking portal, people were able to begin making appointments for their second booster of COVID vaccine. The move to offer fourth doses to the 60-plus demo comes as the number of hospital cases are increasing and immunity is waning in this sixth wave. On Wednesday, just after the plan was announced, Libby was joined by a panel to discuss the fourth-dose vaccination campaign. Kiro Masse is pharmacist and owner at Lawler Pharmacy in Toronto. Dr. Prabhat Jha is an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalla School of Public Health. And Dr. Barry Pekis is York Region's Medical Officer of Health. You know, I think it's news we were expecting. We're looking forward to giving uh, folks in that age bracket their fourth dose. Um, we've seen it work well in other countries, particularly Israel, where it showed some, you know, really robust uh, results uh, preventing severe illness and, and most uh, importantly, uh, preventing death in folks who've gotten the fourth dose. So, you know, I think it's, it's good news. And, and the five-month interval, I think, is, is good news as well. It's sort of uh, it's an, an interval with, that I think makes sense from a scientific point of view, and, and we certainly have the capacity, uh, whether it's in pharmacies or, or primary care or in our public health um, clinics, uh, to deliver that, that dose to anybody who needs one. Dr. Ja, uh, I think only about 50% of people in the province have taken their third dose. Yes, and we know third doses have reduced um, hospital occupancy and intensive care occupancy. So I think that remains the priority. I I think we should be a bit humble that effectively we've got a more modest next wave, hopefully a more modest next wave if you look at the European data, who are typically two or three weeks ahead of us. And that um, these strategies to try to get vaccines into uh, the above 60 are only going to have a minor role, quite frankly. We know that um, even two doses, but ideally three, have excellent protection against hospitalizations and deaths. However, the people who are still showing up in the uh, in in hospital are the really elderly, the ones that are 80 or older, and the ones who have frailty. You know, they have basically um, they can easily fall sick. Those populations would be good targets for fourth doses. And I hope that's the prioritization that uh, that is done. I, I think we've almost given up on the goal of trying to decrease cases, but we should still focus on decreasing hospitalization. I would have liked to see a messaging much more on the importance of continuing masking, for example, because uh, we know masks uh, are effective, um, and yet uh, the the messaging was very much okay. You know, you you get your fourth dose, you're okay. I think I would take far 
widespread masking above trying to push a fourth dose. Let's bring in Kiro Masse. Uh, how are you fixed for supply? Do you have to get supply in? I know that uh, a lot of pharmacies have seen a big slowdown in people coming in for whatever their first, second, or third doses, and uh, they've got to gear up now. So right now I have about six doses in my fridge because there's such a low demand and I obviously don't want to order doses that are going to expire. Um, it will probably be, as mentioned, the um, very immunocompromised or people with multiple comorbidities, uh, very elderly, they will be seeking it out. And much like the third dose, which unfortunately didn't have such a huge uptake, but um, they were not going to get such a huge demand. In the grand scheme of things, I feel that a fourth dose is like offering a helmet to someone being mauled by a bear. Uh, there are so many other measures that we can do that will have a greater impact but aren't being done, like masking, as mentioned as well, uh, providing better access for Paxlovid, which objectively has a much uh, higher efficacy in preventing hospitalizations and complications than a fourth dose. But again, I'm not seeing that. So we'll stock up and we'll do our best to, to look after the people that need it. Kiro Masse, pharmacist and owner of Lawler Pharmacy in Toronto. Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. And Dr. Barry Pekas, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario workers who earn minimum wage will be getting a pay increase no matter which party wins the June provincial election. The boosts promised by both opposition leaders are bigger than what the governing Ford PCs are proposing, which is a 50-cent increase to $15.50 on October 1st. The Stephen Del Duca Liberals are promising a $16 an hour minimum wage in 2023, while the Andrea Horvath New Democrats say they would bump minimum wage to $16 an hour October 1st with a plan to move it to $20 by 2026. Fight Back went to representatives with business groups and worker advocacies to get reaction on Wednesday. Craig Pickthorn is with the Ontario Living Wage Network. Sheila Block is senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And Brad Butt is VP of Government and Stakeholder Relations at the Mississauga Board of Trade. Well, listen, we recognize that workers like businesses have been impacted by the pandemic and higher cost of living uh, and other related issues, and that minimum wage normally does, you know, have a natural kind of increase uh, uh, year by year, um, other than the freeze that we had at the beginning of the Ford administration. So we recognize that minimum wage is certainly going to increase, and it should keep pace with, with inflation. Now, this is a 7.5% increase, so that's certainly higher than inflation. And there will be some businesses that will be impacted by this. They will cut hours, they will reduce employment, and uh, they will have to do some work themselves that they would otherwise hire uh, workers to do because this will be an impact along with 
significant increased costs in in input into their businesses, particularly restaurants with food, etc. So, yes, this is going to have an impact on businesses, no question. Uh, Sheila, how do you respond to that? Well, um, everything has an impact on businesses, and we know that recent increases in commodity prices like gas have had a big impact as well. But I also think that these proposed legislative increases might just be catching up to what's actually happening in the labor market. We've heard a lot about labor shortages um, uh, in some of the industries that uh, my colleague just mentioned in terms of restaurants and others. So, you know, the way markets work is those wages are going to be bid up, and it's good to have that legislative floor uh, underneath it to support that. Let's bring in Craig Pickthorne. Your group has done a study uh, not that long ago, and you say that if you, somebody wants to live in Toronto, they need to make at least 22 bucks an hour. $22.08. Yeah, you're right. So it's a difference. It turns out to a difference each, um, each week of uh, uh, $230. That's how much you're short about being able to make ends meet. So that's not a small jump, I mean, as we can see. I also would like to just respectfully uh, correct Brad that it, it really is um, less than one in three minimum wage workers are under the age of 20. We've known that for a while. And our friends at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives um, have shown that time and time again. If there's a shortfall, uh, how do people do it? Is it a, generally a matter of working more than one job, or uh, do they have to team up with other people in terms of housing? I'm saying, what do people, if there's a deficit in what you need and what you earn, how do they make that meet? I understand that, that one of the ways that they, they make it work is make terrible choices between rent and food or rent and child care. These are just, this is just not a, a good situation uh, for the worker and for the community as well. Uh, Sheila, what's your view of that? I absolutely agree with Craig there, is that, um, you know, throughout this pandemic, the, those kinds of terrible choices have been highlighted. Some of them are, do I go to work sick uh, or do I put food on the table for my kids? Uh, another example is, you know, do I risk infection at work or put food on the table for my kids? So we know that there is a lot of working poverty, particularly in Toronto, but not exclusively in Toronto. And it is those untenable choices that people are forced to make. And uh, with huge negative impacts, not only for those individuals and families themselves, but really for the, for, uh, for the province as a whole. That 50 cent increase uh, is a 3% increase from where it's at now. I think that that in terms of low-wage workers, we're seeing a lot of, there is notions of shortages and wages will start to come up. So it's not going to be felt either on either side. Any impacts on the employer or unfortunately for employees, um, it'll be a very muted effect. Sheila Block, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Craig Pickthorne with the Ontario Living Wage Network, and Brad Butt, VP of Government and Stakeholder Relations at the Mississauga Board of Trade. They were in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, housing affordability. 
Will the federal government budget plan make this a reality? We will discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As expected, the federal budget released on Thursday was heavily focused on housing availability and affordability in Canada. The Trudeau Liberals have followed through on announcing a $10 billion plan, as promised during the 2021 election campaign. In addition, they are hoping to create tax-free savings accounts to allow first-time homebuyers to save up to $40,000 and a rent-to-own program. And they've also imposed a two-year foreign home buyer's ban. Just before the budget was released on Thursday, Libby was joined by Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage, to get early reaction. We've seen prices escalate uh, rapidly during the pandemic when foreign uh, purchases of property in Canada was basically shut down, uh, fundamentally down to almost zero. So this is a domestic issue. It's it's not going to be solved by uh, pointing the finger at people from abroad. And so what do you think? Is this just uh, to make them look like they're doing something or what? And it's not just federal government, provincial governments, uh, BC, uh, British Columbia being the most uh, prominent, but others as well have uh, long uh, used uh, tax majors or other forms of making it difficult uh, for uh, non-Canadians to uh, invest or purchase uh, property in Canada uh, for the headlines. It's frustrating sometimes when uh, people spout off statistics that they they don't know. You know, the reason prices go up in Vancouver is because uh, the Chinese are buying up all the properties when even at the peak in the middle of the last decade, uh, it was in, in, in the most prominent neighborhoods in, in uh, greater Vancouver, it never reached double digits. So it's always a small portion of the market. And people forget that Canadians are the largest purchasers of uh, uh, foreign purchasers of property in the United States. There's some 3 million Canadians own properties south of the border. So, uh, you know, we've got to be careful with this, but it's not a material element in this uh, particular budget package. Okay. Well, they, the Liberals say they're going to spend $4 billion to build 100,000 new homes in urban areas by 2025, with more than half of that going for low-cost and co-op housing. Is that realistic? Is that going to get done? That's uh, You've hit the nail on the head. The, the challenge there, it's, it's a laudable goal. Uh, I think many of the items that have been laid out uh, by the minister are important and the challenge will be at actually executing on these programs. Uh, if you put these together with the um, elements in uh, provincial government plans to help speed the construction of new housing, because we do have a, a critical housing shortage in this country, uh, we could make a real dent. We could, we could, uh, slow the rise of home prices, and more importantly, actually create homes that people can move into, because that's part of the problem. People just literally don't 
have the homes to move into right now. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Whether it gets done or not will be the, the true measure of success. The young people bidding on houses say they really need is to outlaw blind bidding because we see these crazy bidding wars, uh, houses going for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over asking. Uh, What about that? In the industry, we have no issue with changing the way we uh, manage the brokerage process. We offer uh, auction style processes today, which is the alternative. It's not how the homes are are bought and sold that's causing the problem. It's the number of homes available for sale versus the number of people looking for housing. The brokerage process is is just the the tail. It's not the dog. So it it starts with the seventy percent of Canadians that own homes who say, mm, "I'm not interested in that process." Yeah, but it, if it's if not it, that it's not available, if if it's, we don't mind. Yeah, happy. but it, who would who would make a law? Is that a provincial law? Uh, yeah, uh, real estate is is managed in each province by uh, legislation, so it would have to be implemented uh, province by province. Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage, in conversation with Libby just before the release of the federal budget. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Toronto residents in three city wards will be allowed to continue keeping hens in their backyards for at least another year as part of an ongoing pilot project. The pilot has already been running for three years, and city staff are recommending that it be expanded and made permanent, citing access to fresh local eggs, educational opportunities for children, and mental health benefits. But the conversation takes place as a highly pathogenic avian flu is spreading through North America in five regions of the province, including among backyard flocks. On the day Toronto City Council was deciding whether to continue the pilot project, Libby spoke with Michelle Nolden, an actor who wrote and directed a series called Free Range Children that follows the stories of Michelle and her family as they figure out how to become backyard chicken farmers. Also, Sarah Doucette, a former city councillor and a three-year participant in the pilot program of backyard chicken farming, and Deputy Mayor Michael Thompson, councillor for Scarborough Centre, Ward 21. Council has uh, just voted on the matter. They have voted to continue the pilot, in fact, to add three additional areas, um, wards 9, 10, and 11, but to refer the matter back to staff for further discussion, further consultation. Okay, so basically it has been delayed. Council has not approved a citywide program. What had been on the table was making it permanent and expanding it to the whole city. Let's get some reaction first. Sarah, you've kept uh, the heads for three years. You like it. What's your reaction to this? It's difficult. We've got reports of this avian flu, and we have to take that seriously. So I do support staff coming back in January to to talk about this. Now, the citywide was never going to happen until April of next year. Right. So hopefully by next year we will have. I'm not. I'm not. You know, an expert. The regular avian flu coming through, which isn't as contagious, isn't as. Yeah, strong. 
the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Um, and city staff will once again say, we support, public health is involved. Um, a lot of organizations are involved with making the decision. And hopefully in January, they can say, yep, we're good. We can still go citywide and we can start that again for April 2023. Michelle Nolden, uh, are you disappointed? Well, I mean, I'm I'm hugely in favor of backyard chickens for sure. But, you know, I think it's maybe not a bad thing because it allows maybe a bit more preparation. You know, having backyard chickens is a responsibility for sure. And I think that one of the things that it can do is to make sure that there are some regulations in place and to make sure that, that the hens are taken care of and that people are, are keeping backyard chickens responsibly. Because, you know, avian flu is something that you have to worry about, but there's lots of other things that you have to worry about with chickens too, and being a responsible pet owner is, is crucial. Why are you so in favor of, of keeping the hens? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, I knew nothing about chickens other than that, you know, I enjoyed eating them. <laughs> Before. <laughs> and so, you know, my family and I moved outside of the, out of the Toronto area, as many people did, right just before COVID. And we sort of inherited these four hens and they were literally like life changing for us. They were, I have three boys and they were, they just became like part of our family. Like they were, they really became like pets. They've, they've got little personalities. They're very social and the benefits of keeping them aside from the beautiful eggs that you get and is, is, is just tremendous. I've learned so much from them. And I think on a larger level, just in terms of, of food security and, and for the kids to understand where our meat comes from. And so I think the education part of it is, is huge, huge for kids. Do you see this as a, an example of, of a city hall being resistant to new ideas? Uh, no, I don't. I, I think that these are legitimate concerns, and I and I do I do agree that you know the the welfare of the hens is is paramount to everybody, right? That's everybody's main concern, um, and and all of the things that that it it provides, all the education, the mental health, all of those things are great. But we do have to make sure that we do it properly, and if that takes a little bit more time to get there. Then, then that's important as long as we get there. <laughs> Sarah Doucette, what would you like to leave us with? Oh, chickens rule. The eggs are amazing. Um, they are an educational part. And I do want to thank Councillor Thompson, and I want to thank all the staff who've worked their way through this program since 2018. And I hope that we will get beyond these just certain areas of award and have good bylaws that are strict enough to protect the hens and chickens and the neighbors. Sarah Doucette, former city councillor and a three-year participant in the pilot program of backyard chicken farming. Michelle Nolden, an actor who wrote and directed a series called Free Range Children. And Deputy Mayor Michael Thompson, councillor for Scarborough Centre Ward 21. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. 
And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. John in Brampton phoned about the Backyard Chicken Pilot Project in Toronto, which he feels should not be made permanent. Concerning the backyard farm and chicken, um, it's not a bad idea, but it, it could come with consequences, which I know many of us may not be thinking about. Because when you rain chicken, uh, the, 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 the chicken have what you call from the feed, the, the peas and everything. It have a smell, which it, it attracts raccoon, uh, squirrel. It attracts uh, rats. It attracts flies. It, it attracts a lot of other reptiles. Maybe you don't know where, where they're hiding, but when they get those smells, to be honest, I'm telling you, it, it encourages all those, those sorts of uh, obstacles. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Raymond in Etobicoke, who phoned ahead of the federal budget release to talk about a change he would like to see, which would provide more options for Zoomers. Mandatory withdrawals from the RIF is what bothers me. First time that affected me, my income went up $10,000. And and this it continues on. And, and I don't have, you know, millions, but I've written to the Minister of Finance, to my MP, and even the Prime Minister over the last couple of years, zero response. Not even, a, you know, oh, thank you for your blah, blah, you know. And uh, it it just goes on and on, and uh, we're forgotten about. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.